Acts chapter 20. We're going to cover verses 1 through 16. And it's going to be a, a two-parter. Today we'll look at part 1. And then next time we're together, we'll look at the second half of the chapter. But verses 1 through 16 covers Paul's ministry in Greece, Troas, and Miletus. Paul has done ministry now in Berea, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus. And this last section of Acts gives us details about Paul's journey to Jerusalem, his arrest there, and his voyage to Rome. Paul was determined to do his father's will. He was determined to finish his course. That is the mission, the call that God had given. And he had determined to finish it with joy, no matter what the cost, no matter what the sacrifice, or the consequences might be. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 20 now. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia, and Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia." These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. Now chapter 19, uh, in chapter 19, we saw Demetrius. He got the people all stirred up against Paul. Because if you remember, Demetrius and other uh, idol makers uh, would make the idols and they sold them and they made, that's how they made their money. Well, when Paul began to preach that these, these idols that were made with men's hands were nothing and they were useless the people began to lose their business, that is, their money. And so the people got stirred up and they rioted, and it took a while for the town clerk to settle everybody down and restore order to the town again. After things calmed down and everybody dispersed, Paul said his goodbyes to the disciples, and he took off for Macedonia. And the uproar happened because, like I said, Paul was preaching truth. The world doesn't like the truth. The world doesn't want to hear the truth. And it's really sad, too, that there are some Christians that don't want to hear the truth either. They're happy in their own little Christian world. They've made up their little Christian world, and they don't want to be disturbed. They don't want that to be upset. The truth is wonderful, as long as it's for somebody else. As long as it doesn't pertain to me. And many people like to stick to their ideas rather than listen to the truth and rather than search out the truth, rather than, you know, to check out whether these things be so like the Bereans did. In Malachi chapter 1 verse 2, it reads, God said, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Malachi 1 7, God said, you offered defiled food on my altar. But the people said, in what way have we defiled you? God said in Matthew 2, 13 and 14, You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. And yet you say, for what reason? And so God tells the people the truth. He says, you know, that, that you offer defiled food on my altar. 
He says that you, you, you know, I, I tell you I love you and you tell us, you tell me, show, how do you love me? He says you cover the altar with tears and with weeping and crying. And he says, but, but he, he, and he doesn't regard their offering anymore. He doesn't receive their offering anymore. And yet the people say, why? God was telling them why, but they didn't want to hear the truth. He says, you know, you're defiling my altar. In what way? How are we defiling it? You know, you, 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 come, to my, you come to me with your tears and, and, you know, in other words, you know, they're coming as hypocrites to God. They're coming to hypocrites as all, as, to his altar. So he stopped taking, he stopped accepting their offering. He stopped receiving it from goodwill, with goodwill from their hands. And they say, why? You know, he's been telling them, but they don't want to hear. They don't want to, they don't want to know why. He tells them, play now, but why? How come? And many adopt the attitude, hey, don't bother me with the facts because I've already made up my mind. They've got their own little plan all made out. <clears throat> Pride and lack of humility are destructive sins. And that's why they were against Paul. That's why they were against Jesus Christ. Galatians 4.16, Paul said to the people, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That's a powerful verse. Because friends will be friends until you tell them the truth. There's no doubt about it. Jesus was not politically correct. Jesus was not afraid to call sin, sin. Jesus was not afraid to call out the religious rulers on their hypocrisies and their dishonesties. In the world, the world and the church can never coexist peaceably. And now again, you've seen that bumper sticker with all of the religious signs where it says coexist. Well, it's a great idea. It's great in thought, but it will never work. All right, the church and the world will never be able to coexist together. Nor will churches of other false religions whose foundation is not based on the essentials of faith. That is the virgin birth of the incarnate Son of God who lived, He died, was buried, and rose again. Essentials of the faith. But those false religions can never coexist with, with the true religion. Again, it's great in theory, but it's impossible in reality unless they come to true repentance and they place their faith and trust in the only true and living God. The only thing that can happen when the world and religion tries to coexist with the church of Jesus Christ is compromise. That's the only thing that will happen. In order to exist together, there has to be compromise. Somebody has to give in. Somebody has to compromise to the message. We are not to compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's word is God's word. It does not need to be revised. It does not be, need to be changed in any ways. It does not need to meet the standards of the world's life and living today. Some churches have tried that, to compromise. You know what happens? They end up with a world-friendly church. Everything goes. They want to fit in. They want everybody, you know, come here and you'll feel good. You know, we won't talk about sin. We won't talk about uh, hell. We won't talk about those things that the Bible, you know, uh, points out. We want to be friendly. We want you to enjoy your, your stay here. But James said in chapter 4, verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? 
And whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why is that? Because the world loves things, some things that God hates. And God hates some of the things that the world loves. And as true believers, you cannot love the things that God hates and you cannot hate the things that God loves. Paul said in Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy. He said, abhor or hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Now the word cling there in Romans 12, 9 is the same word as cleave in, in 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 the King James Version. It's the word cleave, and it's the same word that God used with a husband and wife when it says the husband is to cleave to his wife, and the word cleave means to glue upon. It's to be permanent. Paul said cling, to cleave, to glue together, be stuck to what is good. So we're to love without hypocrisy. That is, we're to hate what's evil, and we're to cling to what is good. The the kingdom of this world and the churches of the world and the kingdom of God, they are so equally opposite. They're so equally opposed that they cannot exist without conflict. That's why there are so many churches popping up all the time. The church is so fragmented. That is, everybody wants to do something just a little bit different. That is, what that means is they want to do it their way. They want to change it. To fit their liking. So what happens, they get their little camp together and they say, hey, you know what? We'll go start our own church down the street and we'll do it right. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. He said, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk in them or among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. And I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God makes it very clear. <clears throat> we are to separate ourselves from the world. We are to separate our things from the things that God hates. All right? And, 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 and to separate our things to the things that God loves. Jesus said in John fifteen nineteen, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, if the, if the world loves you, you better check yourself. If they think you're great and you're wonderful and, 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 and they can relate to you and, and, and you know, when it comes to the, to the gospel and Jesus Christ, there's, there's something that to, be, to be looked at. So when you, because when you speak the truth and you teach the truth and you defend the truth, you'll be hated, Jesus said. The purpose of Paul's journey was to collect funds from the Gentile churches and give it to the church in Jerusalem, which was going through a, a hard financial time. God had started tearing down the walls between the Jewish and Gentile believers and their attitudes were changing But Paul felt that if he could bring the Jewish believers some financial help, 
from the Gentile church to show their love and support, it would open the heart of the Jewish believers even more. Paul found out, as we read in the first uh, few verses, Paul found out that some of the Jews were also sailing to Jerusalem when, when he was for the feast. But they were planning to kill him. And probably because of the ministry that he had to the Gentiles. They probably thought that it would be easy to, to, to take uh, Paul and throw him overboard when it got dark and you know, after they got out to the middle of the sea. And Paul had a lot of money with him and felt the responsibility to get it to the church safely in Jerusalem. So that's why he decided to, turn, to go another route. He decided to turn back from the, the, the sailing on the ship. So he decided it would be a good, good idea to, to get on that ship. So, um, he, so he, I'm sorry, he decided it wouldn't be a good idea to get on that ship because, again, there were those who wanted to kill him and they might throw him overboard. So what he decides to do is go back through Macedonia across to Troas, down to Miletus, then from Miletus onto Antioch, Caesarea, and then to Jerusalem. You see, Paul used wisdom here. He used wisdom here. He was sensitive to what was going on. He was sensitive to his surroundings. And he thought, you know, I, I, I better choose another route. And this is important to understand. It's always a mistake to purposely put yourself in danger. All right? It's always a mistake to purposely put yourself in danger. Especially if you can avoid it. One of the things you hear often, when, when something is dangerous, you've been given a warning, it wouldn't be good to do something or go somewhere, people would go say, where's your faith? Where's your faith? You know, it's like when you travel, you know, and, and the you know, Department of Transportation gives you a warning, you know, it's not safe to go to that country right now. Their government's in upheaval. There, there, there's, there's gorillas running around and it could be very dangerous for you to go over there. I'm, going, I'm, going, I'm just going to trust in the Lord. That's wonderful if God has sent you. But if he hasn't sent you, you are now testing the Lord. And that's what gives actually what we see in Paul here. Paul used wisdom here. We see that when Jesus was, was being tested in the wilderness by the devil. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, it says, The devil took Jesus to the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, Jesus, jump off. Because the scriptures say that, that, that God will, you know, he'll protect, his angels will protect you and they'll hold you up with, your hand, with their hands so that you won't hurt your foot uh, if you dash it against a stone. Jesus said, Yeah, okay, I'll show you. I'll show you. I'm, I'm going to do it just to show you. No, Jesus said the scriptures also say, notice, notice, Satan knows how to use the word, but Jesus said they also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Now Jesus could have jumped and we all know that he could have, you know, he could have just floated down or however he wanted to do it and not got hurt. But he was showing us the biblical principles because he came to show us again how man is to live by the word of God. But again, there are times when we can't avoid trouble. And sometimes God clearly tells us to go on even uh, when things are dangerous. But only when, when God tells you are we to do that. Unless you are sure that God is telling you to do it, don't do it. 
Sometimes people feel they're being more spiritual by putting their lives in danger and saying, hey, I'm just stepping out in faith. I'm, I'm just trusting in the Lord. You know, I'm just going to do it by faith. You know, well, that's what the rattlesnake handlers say down south too. You know, when they handle the rattlesnakes and how many times they get bit and they die or they get, you know, hey, that's not something God has said we are to do. Jesus said in Mark 16, 17 through 19, he says, in my name, in my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. Okay? But it's in my name. All right? We saw last week, when, or it was a week or two ago, when the, 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 the magician, the sorcerer, saw Paul you know, cast out a demon. He said, oh, I'm going to do that too. I'm going to use the name of Jesus. And I'm going to, you know... But he didn't know Christ. He didn't do it in the name of Jesus. He saw the name being used and thought, I'll use it too. But see, it meant nothing. Because he didn't do it in the name of Jesus. It was to, it was to try to have the power that he saw Paul use. But Paul used the name of Jesus because he was doing it in, 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 in the will of God. We read in Acts chapter 28, verses 3 through 6. It says, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. But he shook off the creature into the fire and he suffered no harm. But again, there was no difference. Paul was on a mission that God sent him on. Therefore, God took care of him. You see, until God is done with us, no harm can come to us. But we have to remember what Jesus said when Satan tried to tempt him to jump off the temple. Again, Satan said, if you are the son of God, jump. He'll take care of you. In other words, Satan was telling Jesus, hey, put the word of God to, the, to a test. Come on, jump. Let's see if God keeps his word. But again, Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So unless God tells you to do something, don't do it. Especially when you've been warned about the dangers of it. Verses 4 through 6. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. So these seven men here, it implies what is said in other places, uh, said elsewhere. Paul was concerned about the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Representatives from different churches carried the money to those saints in Jerusalem. Three men were from Macedonia. Those were Sopater, Aristarchus, and Secundus. Four were from Asia Minor, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. They were all going to meet in Troas. Luke was left at Philippi in chapter 16, and it seems that he stayed there up to, uh, up to this point. Then he rejoined the party to go with Paul to Jerusalem. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was in the spring. <clears throat> so they made this 150-mile trip from Philippi to Troas in five days. Verses 7 through 12. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread... Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until night. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, 
who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. As Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and he was taken up dead. But Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves for his life is in him. Now when he had come up and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive and they were not a little comforted. Here we have a record of the day that the early church met. It was always the first day of the week. The believers gathered together for worship, not on the Sabbath, not on Saturday, but on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Now, the first day came to be called the Lord's Day because it was the day that the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected. Revelation 1.10 we should also remember that the church was born on the first day of the week when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Now, in spite of what some Christians say, Christians are not required to observe the Sabbath, as the scriptures show us. First, even though a day of rest and worship is shown by God in creation, the Saturday, Sabbath, was given to Israel. All right, it was given to Israel as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. But Christians aren't under the Old Covenant. So they're not required to observe the sign that's associated with the Mosaic Covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Hebrews 8. Secondly, there's no command in the New Testament for Christians to observe the Sabbath. Third, even during the Mosaic government, the Old Testament did not command the Gentile nations to observe the Sabbath nor commend them if they didn't. I'm sorry, or condemn them if they didn't. That proves the Sabbath was given only to Israel. Fourth, the Bible does not show anyone observing the Sabbath before the time of Moses. Likewise, the first command to keep the Sabbath appears in the law given to Moses at Sinai, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Fifth, the Jerusalem council in chapter Acts 15, I'm sorry, in Acts 15. They did not force the Gentile Christians to keep the Sabbath. Sixth, in Paul's letters, he warned the Gentiles about many different sins, but never about breaking the Sabbath. Seventh, Second uh, Colossians 16, verse 7 and 17. It says the Sabbath was a shadow of Christ. It was a picture of Christ. But the shadow is no longer binding. It's no longer, we are no longer to hold that because the substance, that is the real thing, Jesus Christ has come. Eighth, in Galatians 4, 10 and 11, Paul rebukes the Galatians for thinking that God expected them to observe special days like the Sabbath. And last, Romans 14.5 says, Observing the Sabbath is a personal preference among new believing Jews. And it was tolerated until they became more mature in their understanding of their Christian liberty. So it couldn't be something that God requires believers to do. Now, before this, the practice was to meet on the Jewish Sabbath. But believers started to meet on the first day of the week more and more as the Holy Spirit taught them. So the first day of the week was the day that Jesus rose from the grave and it became the Christian day of worship. Thus, we worship on Sundays. Today, businesses and sports and other activities, they have crowded out the priority of worship. It's a big day to them for sports and business and, and all other kind of you know, um, 
things that they want to do other than, than worship. People's lack of devotion to Jesus Christ is shown by their giving more priority to business and sports and other activities instead of to worship. The church met in the evening because Sunday wasn't a day off. People had to work every day. Now, some of the believers were no doubt slaves, so they couldn't make it to church until their work was done, you know, from the day. And the believers, it says here, they met in an upper room because in that day they didn't have church buildings to meet in. So they were meeting in this upper room and it probably was the upper room of one of the believers' homes. Now, the assembly, the, uh, the church, those that gathered, they would have been a diverse group. But their social and racial differences made no difference. As Paul said, they were all one. We are all one in Jesus Christ and it should be no different today. The early church shared a potluck meal called the love feast or agape feast. And then after that, they would observe the Lord's Supper. We see about the breaking of bread in verse 7. This refers to the Lord's Supper. Or in verse 11, it describes a regular meal. By sharing and eating with one another, the church enjoyed fellowship and also gave witness of their oneness in Christ with one another. Slaves would actually eat at the same table with their masters, which is something that they, didn't, they just didn't do in that day. The church probably observed the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day when they met for fellowship and worship. Some believers may have, uh, may have ended many of their regular meals at home by taking the bread and wine and remembering the Lord's death. And even though Scripture doesn't give us a specific instruction on how often you know, we, we, it doesn't say how often. The example of the early church would encourage us to meet at the Lord's table, though often. Where, you know, again, however, whatever you deem often. The bottom line is, we are, to, we are to do that. We are to have the Lord's Supper. But here's the thing. Even if you did it once a week, every day, whatever you deemed often, uh, communion is not to become routine. Causing us to fail to receive the blessings that it holds for us and what it stands for. The word of God has always spoken, was always spoken in the Christian gatherings and included the public reading of the Old Testament scriptures. As well as whatever letters the apostles may have had or received at the time. So knowing this would, uh, knowing this, pro- uh, would probably be uh, Paul's meeting with the Christians at Troas. And it says here, again, because he knew it was probably going to be his last meeting with him, he preached a long sermon. And afterwards, they ate and they talked with the people until morning. And I, and I you know, I, I doubt that anybody complained. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to, to sit there and to hear Paul preach? I mean, that would have been such a... I'm, I'm sure it was such a neat message and you know, it would have been, would have been neat if, if the Holy Spirit uh, put it in the scriptures here but for whatever reason, it's not here. But I bet it would have really been neat to hear Paul preach that sermon. What we do know is that God's word is important to God's people. At least it should be. The preaching of, word, of God's word, the teaching of God's word, it has to be emphasized. You know, and we gather here not for information. We gather here not to hear history lessons of the Jews and the church and the Bible. We gather 
to be edified. We gather for edification as well as celebration. And that edification comes through the teaching of the Word of God. Listen to what Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1-5 through 5, when he spoke about the gifts. Here's what he said. He said, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Okay, desire spiritual gifts. But he says, especially that you may prophesy. Now, the, prophesy, the word prophesy here doesn't speak of the, of the prophesying like in the Old Testament where it spoke of future events, where it spoke of telling the future. The word prophesy here in the New Testament means to teach, to preach God's word, to speak God's word. So notice when Paul says, if you seek desire, you desire spiritual gifts, may it especially be to be able or to teach God's word, to speak God's word. And here's why he says that's important. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men. That's something between you and God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies or or speaks God's word speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. It's a one-on-one with God. But he who prophesies, he who speaks God's word, edifies the church. He says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. Why? For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets. Why? That the church may receive edification. Three more times you find the word edification in that chapter. It's the key word in chapter 14. The key word is edification. A worship service should lift up the Lord and edify, build up the saints, not puff up the participants. Paul said in, in, in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, let all things be done for edification. And then in chapter 14, verse 4, he said, and let all things be done decently and in order. When we come to God's house to worship, we should come peaceably. Worship is to be done orderly. Preach the word. That is still God's counsel to spiritual leaders and to the churches. According to Dr. Martin Lord Jones, he said, the decadent periods and er- the decadent periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching has declined. And that's what we're seeing today. We're seeing preaching decline. We're seeing it watered down. We're seeing it not taught as the Word of God teaches it, but by men's own interpretations many times. And therefore, when that happens, we see a period of decline. We see a decline. We see just all kinds of wicked things. What is it that always comes before a reformation or a revival? It's a renewed love and a renewed teaching of God's Word. Now here where Paul was preaching in this home, whether it was late in the night, all right, maybe it was late at night, or again, it could have been the stuffiness of the room because of all the candles that were lit. Maybe that smoke was causing it to be stuffy. But whatever the reason, maybe it was late at night, or if it was stuffy because of the candles, Eutychus, now his name means fortunate. Now, though he fell out and died, it, it was fortunate because Paul brought him back to life. But Eutychus fell asleep, and he falls out of the window, and he dies. But Paul, it says, went down and he he raised him from the dead and and left him in the church comforted after that took place. 
God's power was present there to work for God's people. Paul had a lot to say since he was probably preaching his farewell sermon, and it was for their own good. And you know, it's, you know, there's a lot of Eutychuses in the churches all around. You know, like to take naps. But you know, when it comes to other things that we like to do, man, we can stay up all night. You know, we can, you know, whether it's, you know, going on vacation or some sporting event or fishing or whatever we might like to do, watch a a program, we can stay up and, and, and have no problem. We need to prepare ourselves for Sunday morning. And we need to make sure that we're rested and we're at our best for the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, if we, I like this, he said, if we go to sleep during the sermon and die, there are no apostles to restore us. <laughs> no apostles to restore us. So, uh, again, we just, you know, if we know church is Sunday morning, we, we can't stay out all night, can't stay up late. You know, again, there may be certain instances, but we need to come refreshed and enthused and ready to hear what God has to say to us. Verses 13 through 16. Then, <clears throat> then we went ahead in the ship <clears throat> and sailed to Asos, there, in, there intending to take Paul on board. For, see, had, for, he had, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to a Mytilene. We sailed from there and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul chose to walk from Troas to Asos, about 20 miles away. Why? Maybe it was because he, he could spend more time with the believers in Troas while he sent Luke and, and the rest of the party on ahead. Uh, it would take the ship at least a day to sail from Troas to Asos. And, and Paul probably walked, uh, it walked that trip in 10 hours or less. Also, Paul probably wanted to uh, spend time alone with God, to commune with the Lord about his trip to Jerusalem. Again, it, it must have, he must have already sensed that those were going to be difficult days ahead of him. And he may have also been thinking about the message that he wanted to give to the Ephesian elders. There were 50 days between Passover, verse 6, and Pentecost, verse 16, and Paul's trip from Philippi to Troas had already taken 12 days, according to verse 6. It took another four days to get to Miletus, so Paul decides not to go to Ephesus. He didn't want to lose any more time. Instead, he invited the leaders of the Ephesian church to travel about 30 miles and meet him at Miletus, where the ship was waiting to unload cargo and take on more. You see, Paul was not a time waster. He said he was hurrying. He wasn't a waster of time. He didn't want to lose any opportunities that he had to preach. Paul used that time to give more instruction and exhort the leaders of the key church at Ephesus. Paul's love and his concern was so great, he couldn't pass up the chance to give them one last exhortation. The leaders were crucial to the work of Christ and to the preaching of the gospel. And they were going to face some very difficult times. Paul had a special love for the church where he had spent three years building. So in closing, 
Paul's love for the church sets the standard for all Christians to follow. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 12, 9 through 21. This is the standard that Paul set for all Christians to follow. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor or hate what is evil. Cling, cleave to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lacking in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. And have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God may not change the ministry. All right, but you know what? That means we need to change. It may be a hard ministry, difficult. You may serve under a hard leader, a tough leader. You can imagine David, David having to serve under Saul. But you know what? David served Saul, and he served him well. And he allowed God to take care of Saul and to, and to, allow, and to enable David to serve in such a hard place. So God may not change the ministry, so you need to change. Pray that God will give us believers. Pray that God would give all believers, not just church leaders, such a, a teaching and giving and persistent and available love for the church that Jesus Christ purchased with his own blood. Father, we thank you once again for your wonderful word. We thank you for the lessons here, Father, and may we take them to heart, Lord. Father, may we remember we are, we are to edify each one of us. We are to edify one another, Lord. And it comes to the teaching and the preaching of your word, God. And Father, help us to hate the things that you hate and to love the things that you love, God. And help us to remember that we cannot be friends <clears throat> with this world, God, and be friends with you, Lord. Father, it is the very things of the world that, called, that caused Christ to be crucified, God. Have we, may we not have any part in any of that, Lord. So, Father, may you bless your people. May we continue to grow <clears throat> in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, Lord. Father, we thank you for the offering that we're about to receive. We thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, God. Thank you that we've never had to ask for money. We've never had to mention it. We've never had to bring it up, God. For it is your church, and where God guides, he provides. And you know our needs, God, so you know how to take care of us. Father, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.